I'm Nicole. Hi, I'm Hannah. We are stuck inside. But spring is still happening on the outside. This is Sheltered Spring. This podcast is sponsored by the UCSC Campus Natural Reserve and the Environmental Studies Department. All right. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's dive right in. In this episode, we will be talking about coho salmon and stillhead trout. These fish species are both salmonids, and we will be going over their lives during spring. This will absolutely date when we are recording this, but right now in Santa Cruz, California, we are under shelter-in-place orders due to the COVID-19 virus. And we thought it would be fun to bring a little bit of nature into everyone's homes, so we're going to teach you all a little bit about the life history and reproduction of some very cool fish that you may have even eaten at some point. And later in the episode, we will get to hear from a graduate student researcher and learn about her current research and how it is being affected by the shelter-in-place orders. I don't know if you know this, Nicole, but there's actually populations of salmon that are pretty close to us. I just moved here from San Diego as a first year, and I definitely did not know this. Yeah, I usually think of salmon living super far away, like in Canada or Alaska. But they are super close. Scotts Creek, which is near Santa Cruz, is home to a stillhead population and also a coho population. One important thing I should note is that the other common name for coho salmon is silver salmon. They are actually the same species of fish. They just go by different names. Um, But for this episode, I'm just going to be using the name coho salmon. Now, if you're a fishing fan, don't get too excited. Both of these species are currently very endangered in California. I was very surprised to learn this at first because I always thought of salmon in Alaska where they're in greater abundance. And at first I thought this meant that it didn't really matter how many there were in California, but spoiler alert, I was very wrong. Each watershed or individual river or stream where these salmon spawn is important because each salmon population is uniquely adapted to where they were born. So if you tried to move coho salmon from Alaska to Scotts Creek, their survival would probably be very low. And you can even kind of picture that and how different rivers in Alaska look to how rivers in California look. It sort of makes sense uh, a little bit when you think about it, uh, but that was something that I definitely didn't realize at first. That's kind of wild. Is the difference one that is coded genetically, or is it due to specific environmental factors like pH levels? That is a great question. It's actually both. Every stream is slightly different in their physical and chemical attributes. Some are more different than others, and we know that salmon usually return to the river or stream where they were born, so salmon will become adapted to their own watershed, and those adaptions will carry through to the next generation and to the next generation and become just ingrained in their genetic code. I was trying to come up with a good analogy for this, and the best one that I could think of was if you took me, a very distressed and shy Californian, and moved me, without warning, to Montana in the winter. If you want the most up-to-date information on fish sustainability, be sure to check out the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch program website. Just type in coho or steelhead salmon in the search bar for sustainable recommendations in terms of both location and catch methods. This is important in order to keep both our river and ocean ecosystems healthy. Thank you so much for adding that. That is very important information to have. So as I mentioned before, salmonoids are found in rivers from Alaska to California. But right now, Scott Creek is currently the southernmost place in California where coho salmon spawn. Historically, they went as far down as the San Lorenzo River, 
and maybe even further. And we just haven't found evidence of that yet. The next thing I'm going to tell you about is actually one of my absolute favorite things about salmon. I'm going to tell you a little bit about their life cycle. Salmon are anadromous, which means that they are born in freshwater and migrate to the ocean where they will remain until adulthood. When they are first born, they will spend at least one year, but probably more like two or three in the river. This is their juvenile stage. Once they grow large enough, they will begin to change from their river coloring to their ocean coloring. When salmon are in this life stage, they are called smolts. Most species of salmon will die after they spawn, which might seem very sad, but it is actually a crucial step in their life cycle. You see, after the adults die, they become food for other organisms in the watershed. As they decompose, they'll feed little insects and decomposers and other invertebrates, and in turn, those juveniles and smolts will feed off of the insects when they are small. After they grow more, they'll upgrade their food and eat things like other fish. Now, I'm really excited for this next part. I was able to sit down with Katie Kobayashi, who is a salmonid researcher, and ask her some questions. Katie studies still had trout, and she told me about their behavior and how their bodies change during spring. She also told me about how humans interact with steelhead and how that might change because of the shelter-in-place orders following the COVID-19 virus. And she also gave me some amazing fun facts that I think you're all going to like. So I think I wanted to start out by just asking uh, who you are and what is your experience working with salmon and trout? Yeah, so... um my name is Katie Kobayashi, and I am a fourth-year PhD student um, at UCSC in the Ecology and Evolution Department. And my dissertation is about steelhead and rainbow trout, so um, they're a bit of a favorite species. <laughs> um, and I could probably go on for you know hours talking about what my research actually is, but. The tip of the iceberg is um, a lot of my research stems from uh, the kind of fun fact that steelhead trout and rainbow trout are in fact the same species. Um, and the differences between you know, what we think of as two different fish is primarily um, their life histories. So they, one migrates, steelhead migrate to the ocean, much like a salmon do, whereas rainbow trout stay in freshwater in streams or lakes year-round. And these differences lead to a lot what look and seem like two very different fish, um, behaviorally, physio physiologically, morphologically. And so I study how those differences can have consequences for food webs and predator-prey interactions. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was trying to tell that to... Um my family like when I first started learning about that and I was just like even every time I said like yeah steelhead and rainbow trout they're the same thing it always sounded so weird but that's so cool that they do that yeah I mean you know those both are such common species you know you see them in the grocery store or have heard of them because they're you know popular sport fishing species but yeah they're the same thing they reproduce together all the time one one parent can produce offspring of the other kind or life history. Um, they're totally the same species. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the next uh, question I wanted to ask you was sort of about what their life cycle looks like during spring. So when they're either making their way to the ocean or uh, just staying as rainbow trout. Yeah, so springtime is definitely a very busy time in the trout life cycle. Um, For one, so we have these two different life cycles that I mentioned. One is what we call the anadromous life cycle, and those are the fish that migrate to the ocean. And for those fish, springtime is really important, both because we have adults who are coming back from the ocean, swimming back upstream to where they were born, and spawning, so reproducing the next generation of trout. It's also a very busy time because all of the fish that were born last year um, and have been hanging out in the rivers for the last almost a year, um, are getting ready to make their migration out to the ocean. Um, So we have big fish coming in and lots of little fish that we call smolts coming out. And then the rainbow trout are hanging out, doing their same old thing in the stream, staying put. So lots going on. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. Uh, The next question I wanted to ask was when they are sort of changing from when they're juveniles to smolts to adults, uh, what are sort of the main changes that you'll see besides they're just getting bigger? Um, Yeah, so there are lots of changes. So um, the first kind of major transition that we see, as you mentioned, it goes from juvenile to, to what we call smolts. The name of that process is smoltification. And that's the process that we see major, um, morphological and physiological changes as fish prepare to head to the ocean. They typically get much longer and skinnier in shape, and that's because it makes them more efficient swimmers. Um, And they also tend to change color from being very mottled and colorful to having very dark backs and very light bellies, um, which is a really common um, coloration for ocean fish. It helps camouflage from predators, both from above and below. Um, So we see that. They're also getting ready to be able to regulate a completely different salt balance as they change from freshwater to saltwater. Um, And then as adults, when they're returning to freshwater and getting ready to spawn, we see a whole nother set of transitions. They're much, much bigger at this point. And they also get some secondary sexual characteristics. So One of those is called the kipe, and that's like the big hooked jaw. So steelhead get a lower jaw hook, um, especially on males, and that's to help them um, fight each other and compete for mates. Um, And they also change color. They they get much more vibrant again when they return to to fresh water. That's so cool. In sort of this area and in Scotts Creek and near Santa Cruz, what were the, what are like the main threats to the uh, steelhead and rainbow trout? We, we try to categorize kind of the, the threats or that salmonids face into four main categories. Um, and these occur on different scales in different watersheds, but the general idea is that um, we call them the four H's and the four H's stand for hatcheries, hydropower, harvest, and habitat. And those are kind of the four main categories that we see a lot of like negative impacts on trout populations. So hatcheries being 
um, producing a lot of fish and leading to either disease or competition. Um, hydropower being dams that can create um, barriers to migration for fish. Habitat, so habitat degradation, uh, in general, trout like clean, cold, undisturbed water. Um, and then harvest, you know, salmon and trout are a big game species. So overfishing is a big threat to them as well. And then during migration, the other main thing we have to think about is predation. So the biggest threat to smolts specifically is all the critters that like to eat them. Fish, birds, mammals, there are a lot of them. <laughs> Yay, thank you. Uh, the last sort of question I had was, do you think that now that Shelter in Place has put into effect for people who might be going out and doing those like sport fishing or uh, going just going out and enjoying nature, do you think that's going to affect the steelhead and other uh, animals' behavior or how well they're doing or... Um, yeah, I certainly think it's possible. I mean, there's been lots of anecdotal evidence all over the place that the more we've been staying home, the more different wild animals have been benefiting, right? And um, like I mentioned, steelhead and rainbow trout are pretty sensitive to disturbance. Um, They like cold, clear water. And so with more people staying home, it certainly seems like it would provide an opportunity to let them kind of do their thing undisturbed, Um, especially with recreational fisheries being shut down in some counties that, you know, keeps people out of the river and um, leaves them to to have their lives in peace a little bit. (laughs) Um, That said, I also was thinking a little bit about um, how even from home, there are still ways we need to be like mindful of how we're affecting wild animals and, The one thing that comes to mind with trout is water usage. So even from home, and maybe especially when we're home, we're using water, which is a, you know, critical resource both for us and for fish. And so being mindful of things like that can still have an even more positive impact on those populations. Oh, I, I had some other fun facts if you wanted them. Just Oh, yes, always. (laughs) Um, So fun facts. Rainbow trout are a super popular sport fish. um, And so they've actually been introduced to every continent in the world, except for Antarctica. Um, And one of the reasons why they're so fun to fish for is because they'll eat just about anything that they can fit into their mouths. Um, Everything from teeny tiny little bugs to um, like big shrews and mice. And then yeah, trout are in the same family as the salmon family. Um, But the main difference between them and salmon is that they can reproduce multiple times, um, whereas salmon die after they spawn once. Thank you so much, Katie. Now, moving on to a very fun topic, let's talk about salmon sex. When female salmon go to the creek to spawn, they actually make something called a red. Salmon reds are depressions in the substrate that the female will make with her body and her tail, What they do is they'll find a place in the creek, usually at the end of a pool, and they will dig and flip rocks. Now, this is pretty amazing because they can do this without having, of course, arms or hands. But these reds actually have a purpose other than being like a nest to lay the eggs in. In the depression that the reds make, the water is funneled through faster, creating a filtration system for the eggs. 
So the water will always be very clean for them. They're actually pretty big too, the reds are, uh, bigger than you would expect. For coho salmon, they usually range from 0.80 to 8.4 square meters. For all you Americans out there, this is about one to nine square yards, with the average being about 3.5 square yards. And they're pretty easy to spot sometimes. The rocks that the females will flip will not be covered with algae like the surrounding rocks. So look for like stripes in the rocks that are very light colored. And here's the important part, do not step on them. Don't do it. <laughs> Another fun fact for you, male salmon milt, or the salmon seminal fluid, is triggered to start moving and fertilizing eggs as soon as it makes contact with the water. After that, it only has a few seconds to maybe a few minutes before it becomes non-motile and can no longer fertilize eggs. So it is a very small window of opportunity. Salmon also get some crazy physical changes when they reach their spawning stage. Coho are probably the most recognizable with their bright red bodies and green heads where steel heads just get pinker on their sides. Salmon also develop a structure known as a kipe, which is the word used to describe the somewhat photogenic hooked jaws found on the spawners. Although spawners can be fished and are eaten by various other predators like bears, people do not eat them. On top of giving me some great information about salmon and trout, Katie also told me about her own research and how it has been affected by the COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders. Yeah, so... Um... Before shelter-in-place happened, um, I was on, I've been working a lot on the first chapter of my dissertation, um, which is looking at how, like I mentioned kind of at the beginning, these two different life histories, steelhead and rainbow trout that we see, have um, a lot of important differences that could have consequences for um, stream food webs. And in my first chapter, I was looking particularly at um, how those two different life histories influences their metabolic rates, which of course in turn influences how much they need to eat and how, what their energy demands are as predators. So a lot of my work, I did a lot of field work for that chapter. I went out to Scott Creek and captured something like 2000 fish this last summer. Um, all, all small juveniles and ran a series of metabolic assays on a subset of them, which essentially involves putting individual fish in little plastic containers and seeing how quickly they consume oxygen. And then I've been relating that back to both um, the genetics of these two different um, life histories, as well as what the actual populations look like across the watershed. So how many fish there are and how big they are in different parts of the watershed. So that's kind of what I was working on before shelter in place. And during the school year, a lot of that is um, working on lab work um, and processing data for analysis. That's so cool. <laughs> it sounds very fun work. <laughs> Yeah, the field work is definitely my favorite part. <laughs> That's always the fun part. <laughs> um, so after sort of the shelter in place was put into effect, are you still able to work out in the field or is it mostly sort of like how you're saying lab work? Um, so shelter in place has definitely had a bit of an impact on what I've been doing. I'm still keeping plenty busy but what I'm actually doing has definitely shifted a little bit. So 
Um, a lot of the university's policies that have been put in place to maintain distance between researchers and reducing contact have slowed down lab work and field work to only like the most essential of tasks. Um, and most of my work does not fall into that category right now. So um, I'm pretty much on hiatus from the field and lab right now. And so I really, it's really forced me to shift my focus towards thinking about um, the data I already have in hand. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of analysis and writing lately. So when I'm not on Zoom, I'm doing analysis and writing pretty much full time at a computer these days, like all of us. <laughs> still keeping busy though, that's nice. Yeah, still, still have some to do. I definitely feel grateful that I have a few field seasons under my belt prior that I'm able to really capitalize on right now and stay productive. It's been, it's been good. This follows a pattern that has been happening with research in the environmental studies fields as data collection and regular habitat restoration have been put on pause due to their non-essential function. However, this is a bit of a double-edged sword, as although it keeps the researchers safe from possible exposure to the new coronavirus, it hinders both the collection of important data for threatened species, as well as leaving threatened habitats to be repopulated with invasive species. Yet, with the current environmental changes resulting from sheltering in place, many other researchers have hoped that future conservation efforts will be bolsters as clean air and animals reclaiming spaces have awed the public. Hey, thank you for listening to our episode of Sheltered Spring, written and performed by Hannah and Nicole. Thank you to our executive producer, Alex Jones, and the UCSC Campus Natural Reserve and Environmental Studies Department. A very special thank you to Katie Kobayashi. And if you like this episode, please consider leaving us a review. Thank you. <laughs>